You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Well, I look around, I see this is the younger crowd. Huh? Jack, what are you doing here, man? Thank you. Thank you for joining me, brother, the, the gray-haired squad. Yes. So, Our memory verse this month, and I can't emphasize enough, putting God's Word in your mind. You need to store it in your mind. It, it needs to be the, the fuel that feeds the brain. Christianity is a thinking person's religion. We have the Bible, which has all the answers to all of life's questions. So when we study in particular to memorize verses, it does us well and it honors the Lord. Second Corinthians is one of my favorite books of the Bible. When Paul wrote it, now I don't know what you know about the city of Corinth, Greece. Corinth, Greece was a port city at the very southern tip of Greece below Athens. It was actually called an Ist. It's a narrow spit of land where two pieces or two oceans met, and the ships came there and they were transported across the land to get to the other side to the to the sea to avoid the bad weather, in particular in the winter time. Now there was a saying back then, and that was to live like a Corinthian. Corinth, Greece, was known as one of, if not the most debaucherous cities on the known in the known earth then. Not only was it a port city, it had a, an official religious temple set up by the government above the city of Corinth on the hills there, on the hill there, and it housed over 1,000 temple prostitutes, men and women, that would come down each evening to ply their trade in the city of Corinth. Now, let me ask you a question. What better place would there be to go establish a church? And that's what Paul did right there in the middle of Corinth. So when we have opportunities to go to those sinful places, Mardi Gras, Vegas, what have you, we need to go there and share the gospel, spread the gospel. So let's see what Paul has to say right here in our memory verses. So we're going to read these out loud together. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. You ready? So here we go. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Amen. Actually, that verse or those verses dovetail perfectly with our sermon here this morning, in particular, the last line, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested, may also be manifested in our bodies. Let me ask you a question. Do you suffer well? Do you suffer well? When hardship or affliction or calamity or even persecution, if it were to come upon you, are you physically 
Are you mentally and most importantly, are you spiritually prepared to suffer well for the glory of God? That's a hard question to answer, isn't it? God wants us to be prepared to suffer well for his glory. So let's turn to our key verses this morning. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. And I'll read those to us. 1 Peter chapter 5, 5 through 7. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter is addressing the Christian elders in this, this part of this epistle. He's addressing the Christian elders, the overseers of a scattered, scared flock. He understands the dire, life-threatening consequences and circumstances in which the church currently finds itself. So he lays out in this epistle sound theological requirements for the leaders to properly shepherd the flock during this time of persecution. So let's go back 2,000 years. Let's get a proper context of what's going on here. So let's go back 2,000 years, or if you don't want to do that, we'll just go to modern-day Afghanistan, or we'll go to 58 Muslim countries around the world, or how about communist China or North Korea, and we'll see what persecution looks like. This is what is going on at the time. So again, to get a proper context of what Peter is writing about here, uh, we always read the Bible in context. If someone were to ask you, hey, do you read the Bible literally? You say yes, in context. And the way we do that is we ask ourselves, number one, who is the author? Number two, who is his audience? And number three, what's going on at the time? So that's what we'll do here this morning as we move forward in the sermon. Who was the author? Well, it was one of the original apostles, or the original apostles, Peter, one who had traveled with Jesus. So he's writing this letter. What is going on at the time? Well, this letter was written about 64 AD. This is about 30 plus years after Jesus's crucifixion. What's taking place at the time? Well, it was written either right before or immediately after the Roman emperor Nero burned the capital of the Roman Empire, Rome, burned it to the ground along with thousands of people. And being a good politician, what did he do? He had to find somebody to blame, him, blame other than himself for what happened. You may have heard the saying when we were kids coming through school, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. This is where this comes from. This actual historical event took place. Indeed, at this time. So what did Nero do? I got to find somebody to blame for this other than me. Because he did it on purpose. He did it deliberately so he could have land to build. Well, who better to blame than an already hated group of people? The Christians. And why were they hated? Because we were seen as a sect of the Jews, an offshoot of the Jews. And the Gentiles hated the Jews. As a matter of fact, one of the previous emperors, Claudius, had thrown all the Jews out of Rome, and they had gone out and spread out throughout the um, known world at the time. So Peter writes this letter 
to the Christians who have been falsely blamed for burning Rome to the ground. And what this does is this accusation launches a vicious persecution of the Christians that lasts for over 200 years. And we're talking about in the Colosseum being fed to the lions and being used as a human torch type persecution, which takes place. And as a result of this, the Christians, they flee and they run for their lives. These Christians are the audience that Peter is writing to. As a matter of fact, if you'll look over at 1 Peter, the very first chapter, the first verse of this letter, we'll see what he says here. The audience, and he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, I am writing to, he says, here we go, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's writing to these pilgrims. And what do we know about a pilgrim? They don't have a permanent dwelling. They're traveling. They're on a pilgrimage. They're moving through. And that's what these fleeing Christians are. And as a matter of fact, and this is another sermon, you and I should really be living as pilgrims here on this earth. This is not our permanent home. Yet many people live like that. This isn't the end. Thank you, Lord. So Peter is talking to the Christians here, the pilgrims who are passing through of the dispersion. The Latin word is diaspora, those that have been dispersed through no fault of their own. And they're in the northern, these countries in the northern part of, to the north of the Mediterranean Sea. And the, and the persecution doesn't end once they get there. It continues. And the purpose of this entire letter that Peter writes is how to live victoriously for the Lord in the midst of suffering. How the Christian, under the most extreme persecution, hardship, can live victoriously for the Lord in the midst of this persecution. And he wants us, he wants them to do this a certain way. He wants them to do it without a few things. He wants them to do it without becoming bitter. He wants them to do it without losing hope in the midst of this persecution. You see, our faith as Bible-believing Christians, our faith has an object. Our hope has an object. And that object is Jesus Christ. We do not put our hope in ourselves and to a large degree, especially for eternity, we don't put it in our fellow man. We put our hope in Jesus Christ. And the last thing that a person runs out of, having spent eight and a half years on our peer support team for my job and dealt with suicide, attempted suicide, and other tragedies, the last thing a person runs out of before they attempt to take their life is they run out of hope. With Jesus Christ, we should never run out of hope. In the midst of the suffering or midst of the persecution or whatever season you find yourself in now under, under trial, in, in a trial you'd rather not be in, we don't have to run out of hope. Peter also wants the Christian to live victoriously for the Lord without displaying unrighteous anger. There's righteous anger and there's unrighteous anger. We see that with the world. Blame, 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 blame. Peter says, have nothing to do with that. He wants us to live victoriously in the midst of suffering without damaging our Christian witness. Christians should suffer well. We should be the one when everybody's running around with their hair on fire at work or wherever, you should be the calm one. You should be the, the peace instigator. You should be the one not throwing the gasoline on the flames of whatever's going on at work. That only damages your Christian witness. 
And Peter wants us to do this, yet while trusting in the Lord. He will not disappoint us. He hasn't forgotten about us. Even if the season that you're going through right now is self-inflicted, God has not rejected you. He's not turned his back on you. He wants us and wants you to live victoriously in this season. He wants us to do this while we're looking forward to his second coming. I think that's something that we don't do enough. Imagine what heaven is going to be like. All this nonsense, man, it's gone. There's no more COVID. There's no more elections. There's no more cancer. There's no more death. There's no more children being abused. There's no more violence. There's no more tears. There's no more sadness. That's what we should look forward to as Christians as we live and travel as pilgrims through this thing called our life. Look forward to the Lord's second coming. Let that pick you up. Let that buoy your spirits. These things should be the default response of a Christian during times of suffering. This is what we should default to. And by doing so, we can evangelize the world in the midst of our suffering. Christians should suffer differently. Our worldview about these things that have befallen us should be different. And when a Christian... When you and I suffer well, God gets the glory. How you carry yourself or comport yourself while hurting or suffering, or perhaps you've been wronged, deliberately wronged through no fault of your own, how you carry yourself during these times, it's a very public testimony. There's something different about a Christian who suffers well for the Lord. It catches people's attention. Yet... Often during these times of suffering, we'll find ourselves on the other side of the tracks or right over there with the world, man. We're consumed or entrenched in self-pity. We're lashing out. We've got to blame somebody. We're consumed with stress or anxiety, maybe even panic. That's not what the Lord wants us to do. And as I was studying for this, I was thinking about these things, and they were, they were hitting home. What is it that causes us to get entrenched in these things that the world approves of, yet the Lord says, have nothing to do with it. Don't respond like that. I've got a better plan. I've got a, I've got a more wholesome plan for you. And you think about those things. Think about what you're in. Think about what you've gone through. And if we were to use our present response to suffering and hardship, if we were to use those things as a barometer to predict how we would hold up under being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum type persecution, how do you think you'd do? That's sobering, isn't it? Use your past history as a barometer. How would I do if they marched me out there against that tree and said, recant or die? How would we do? Sobering. I fully admit that. Now, these Christians, they're being hunted down and they're being killed. No different than in many countries today. And Peter gives them, gives them some instructions, some very clear instructions. And it's not like what, you know, Brother Chad made a very good point last week, just a little humor, but his spot was theologically straight on. You know, Joel Osteen, heretic Joel Osteen, he how do you think living your best life now is going to, that, that sermon or that worldview is going to play with these people? Not very well, is it? Listen, if you can't preach something in the Bible to a person that is facing death, 
For example, I've been to Angola several times with the Gideons giving out Bibles. And one time I went to death row and I'm thinking, am I going to be able to preach? You know, God has a wonderful plan for your life. If I don't at least explain what wonderful means. No, you can't do that. So whatever we preach and whatever we teach as Christians, it has to be, you have to extend it out as far as it will go. And what is Peter dealing with here? He's dealing with these Christians and he himself has been persecuted and has suffered. So he says in 1 Peter, let's look at uh, chapter 4, verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, to, the, to the, our brothers and sisters that are, that are running for their lives. Well, beautiful word he starts with there, beloved. Never forget that God does love us no matter what we have done. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Well, I would challenge you to find any secular counselor that would tell you to rejoice in your suffering. Yet the Christian looks at things differently. When we suffer because of Christ, because of being a Christ follower, Peter is saying here, literally, you should rejoice and consider the author. This is Peter who has suffered persecution for the Lord. He understands what he's saying here. What a, what a shift, what a 180, 180 degree, um, complete, diametrically opposed worldview the Christian has to suffering than the world. Peter lays out four proper responses for the Christian, for you and I, to persecution. And I'm going to use what John MacArthur says here. Four proper responses for the Christian to persecution. Now remember, persecution is the umbrella, martyrdom. That includes martyrdom, being put to death for doing what we're here doing this morning. I mean, you can't give anything else more than your life. So everything under that, and this is who Peter is talking to. He's talking to the people that are facing martyrdom, a very real prospect, and many of them are martyred. So anything that you and I have an experience other than martyrdom, it, those situations, Peter is addressing them. They're the lesser than, not to diminish what we're going through. And here's what he says. Here's what he wants us to do just to encapsulate it very, very concisely and tight, tightly. He wants us to expect persecution and expect suffering. He wants us to rejoice in it. He wants us to evaluate its cause. Why am I going through this? Is it self-inflicted? S-I-N. Is it self-inflicted? And you know, if you're going through a season of self-inflicted suffering, what we're talking about here this morning, this applies to you. This applies to your circumstances. God hasn't said, well, you've sinned and I'm done with you. My grace and my mercy, it's no longer available to you. No, this applies to you and I. When we do those things, we know that we shouldn't do. Don't give up hope. We're to entrust our situation to God is God sovereign? Yes, he is. 
The very God that has forgiven you of your sins, if you have repented and turned from your sins and put your trust in Christ, the very God who has forgiven you and sealed your eternity, I think he can take care of these issues that you and I face here on earth. He can do that. Just as a bit of an audible here, it probably won't show up on your on the screen there. Let's look at Romans chapter five. Romans chapter five, verses three through five. Romans chapter five, verses three through five. <clears throat> Paul, obviously Paul writes this. The title of the book is Romans. Paul has written this letter to the Romans, to the Roman Christians the very people who are now fleeing for their lives. And see what Paul says here. And of course, Paul, we know, he fully understands what it is to be persecuted. Romans chapter five, verses three through five. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's why it's so important to read our scriptures, to read our Bible. God is preparing us for different things. Not only that, but we, re we rejoice in our sufferings. Just take that, that sentence right there and ponder on it this week. God expects us to rejoice in our sufferings. And we know the good will, out, will come out of that. God never causes us to sin. He doesn't do that. But what God does is he uses sin sinlessly. If you found yourself through your own, I got a mirror up here, okay? You found yourself in a season of suffering because of your own sin, God will use that sin and good will come from it. That's a whole nother sermon. I got one, it's 12 reasons God allows us to suffer. Come back next week. No, I won't be here next week. Actually, Tanner, I think, I think I did a video on that. It hasn't been released yet. God will use your suffering. Good can come from your suffering. It produces endurance and it produces character in the Christian and character produces that hope. So we're back to that hope issue that we talked about earlier. And that hope does not put us to shame. That hope in Jesus Christ. So how can we prepare ourselves to respond in the proper fashion? Well, let's go back to our key verses here, 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5. Let's start in, a, well, let's start at verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Remember who the author is here. This is Peter. This is Mr. Even if I have to die, Lord, I will not deny you, right? That's who Peter is. This is, hey, I'm going to jump out of the boat and walk on water for a little while. And here we are. This letter was written, as I'd mentioned, about 64 AD. This is about 30-ish years after Jesus' crucifixion. I would imagine that Peter may have been looking back, on it, looking back on his own impetuous lifestyle as a young person. You know, there's a saying that old men start wars and young men fight wars. Young people are, we, Jack, we are full of this vigor and vim. We want to go, we want to get stuff done, right? Ready, 
fire aim, you know? And I think Peter may have been addressing that issue there. He says, young people, you need to defer, you need to slow down, and you need to defer to your elders. Give deference to the elders, to the leaders of the church, to the overseers of the church. Our elders and overseers, the leaders of the church, they have wisdom that only comes with years of experience of serving the Lord. They, they have been there, at, been there in ministry. They've seen these things. And experience is the best teacher if you get a second chance. We say that as a professional pilot. You know, experience is the best teacher if you get a second chance. And a lot of people don't. So experience is a wonderful thing. And these overseers and leaders and elders of our churches and the men that Peter is addressing here, he's saying, put your, go to them for wise counsel. These are the men that you defer to, not your own. We appreciate your energy and your enthusiasm, and there is a place for you. And I'm wondering if Peter's thinking, you know, these young men, especially full of the testosterone and ready to go and adrenaline, he might be concerned that they're going to take up arms against the government in the name of Christianity. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that we are to spread the gospel at the tip of a sword or with a rifle. Now, we do defend ourselves. That's perfectly fine. We're not doormats to be run over. But we don't spread the gospel or defend the gospel at the tip of a sword. Other religions do that. And I think Peter perhaps has this in mind. So he wants the young people to go to the elders. As a matter of fact, speaking of, of wisdom and speaking of counseling, you know, it used to be up until about 100, well, before the, in the uh, 19th century, in the 1800s, up till then, around 1900, actually, the community, the unsaved community used to go to the pastor because typically he was the most educated person in the community, in the town. And the community would go to the pastor for counseling. It used to be called soul care. You would go to him to seek his advice on what it is that people need to do with their lives. Well, with Sigmund Freud in the late 1890s, we ceded that over to the secular. You see, Freud wants and wanted what only Christianity can provide, but he wanted it without Jesus, without the Christianity. You know, I was, Kathy and I were so impressed and, and still are with the elders of this church. In particular, one thing that immediately caught my eye because I was part of the, as I said, the peer support group with, our, with work for uh, eight or nine years. And we're, you know, doing first aid counseling at, at the very low level when there's shootings or traumatic uh, incidences or airplane or helicopter crashes. We would respond to help the people. So we had a lot of counseling, a lot of training, and it was secular. And a lot of it is actually very good. But secular counseling, with the way they start, secular counselors, they look, they say, the problem or the uh, solution is inside you because you're a good person. That doesn't work. We know what the Bible says, right? I created the problem I, because I'm not good. I need to look to someone else that can solve it, someone else that can help me down this path. That's why we need to take advantage of people like Brother Chad and the Nehemiah Project. Listen, you don't have to hit rock bottom before you go over there or give Chad a call. Mental first aid, mental checkups along the way, that mental health is, 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 can be a physical issue also. And, Paul, and Peter wants the, the young people to go to the wise, mature counselors or elders for counseling because 
when we're under duress or under stress, there's a physical change that takes place in our brains. All the chemicals and the prefrontal cortex and amygdala, and that's all I can remember. And right, all these things, these chemicals, the endorphins and the cortisol and the adrenaline and all this stuff spikes when you're under duress and when it's chronic for a long time. All this stuff shifts, and you literally are not thinking clearly. It's a physical issue when you go through these traumatic incidences. That's why we need. I encourage you. Go talk to Chad. You don't have to hit rock bottom. It doesn't have to be where something catastrophic has befallen you. Go talk to him. He has the answer because he turns to the Word of God. Did you know the Bible has the answer to all of life's questions, every one of them? There's everything you and I have experienced. It can be found in the Bible, including, and I don't say it lightly because I've dealt with it, suicide. And I'm not talking just about Judas. There's other instances of suicide in the Bible. God provides these, these healing measures, these, these instructions to bring us through these times of suffering so that indeed we suffer well. There is a hierarchy of leadership within the church. And this hierarchy of leadership that God has ordained sustains order. And the men that he has put over the church, over the local church, God has appointed them. They are responsible for the care of, of his sheep. So we, <clears throat> excuse me, we move on in verse five. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Huh. Clothe, put it on, fully ensconced, fully wrapped in humility. When somebody's getting squeezed by life, you'll see what they're made of. You'll see when the pressures of life are just squeezing them. The Bible says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When somebody's under pressure, you'll see what they're made of. You know, we, I see it all the time at work, you know, when we have these stressful situations. And I saw one here just recently. I thought, wow, I never thought I'd see that come out of that guy. But he was under duress, under stress about a particular issue. And he, got a, he said some things. I'm like, well, there you go. But... Peter tells us here, he's telling the Christians, I want you to be clothed, all of you, all of you, I want you to be clothed with humility towards one another. The default typically when we're hurting is, hey, you need to take care of me. It's all, you have the universe and we have the center of it right here, right? When we're hurting. Peter says, no, we're to have humility towards everybody. You look to your left and you look to your right that's who's going to be standing beside you if persecution comes to Mandeville. Your fam unsaved family members are not going to be standing there beside you. I hope it works out. I'm sad. I'm upset. But I didn't sign up for this Christian stuff. That's your game. And this is what's going on there. You look to your left and to your right. That's who you're standing with, going to be standing with when persecution comes. We need to have humility towards one another. We don't need to turn against each other. We need to turn towards each other. We're interconnected because of what Jesus has done on the cross. On the cross. <clears throat> we need to be fully enclosed in virtuous humility towards each other and, of course, towards the Lord.
For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is a, a, a quote of the Old Testament. And I use it quite a bit, typically when I'm out on a milk crate, open air preaching. And it's typically it's used, it's in James chapter four, verse six also. It's used when in reference to God opposing a proud, arrogant, uh, self-righteous, unsaved person. God opposes the proud. But listen, pride is such a dangerous thing. That's what casts Satan out of heaven. It's what a, the original fall all took place of because of pride. I want to be like God. Did God really say that? I want to be like God. Pride creeps in, creeps into our lives, Christian. Nope. She did this to me. He said this to me. I'm holding on to that. That's that pride. You know what, you know what that says? I don't deserve to be treated like that. Well, the Lord wants us to have nothing to do with that pride, prideful, proud, arrogant, self-righteous attitude. God resist the proud. We should be the first to forgive. We should be the first to forgive. And when we do this, it says, the next part of the verse says, yet he gives grace to the humble gift, a gifting. You didn't earn it. You didn't buy it. You didn't purchase it. I'm going to let you have this. And I'm going to give you this thing called grace, this unmerited favor. And when we're hurting, we need God's grace. When we're suffering, we need that unmerited, supernatural peace that surpasses all understanding to come upon us. This is what we need from the Lord. So we go on to verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Therefore, we know in Scripture when it says therefore, it's because what was written before the word therefore. So he, Peter makes a grand statement here. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That, that, it sounds like trumpets should be blaring, some just great you know, Adrian Rogers preaching oracle. It, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That's, a, that's an umbrella statement. It's a, it's a grabbing us by our collars and saying, listen, I know you're in this. I haven't forgot about you. The most important thing for you to do right now is not listen to yourself. You need to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. I've allowed you to go through this. You've put your trust in me, and that should be all of your trust. And in this grand statement, all aspects of our lives, all your decision-making, all of our logic, all of our reasoning, all of our thinking, all these things should be secondary, submissive to the mighty hand of God. And when we mentally acquiesce that and say, Lord, what do you want for me in this? That's the first step in preparing ourselves for the eventual suffering, hardship, and even persecution, <clears throat> even persecution. This is a first step in preparing ourselves for that. We're not going to be caught off guard. This humbleness before God, this, this deliberate thing, and you'll know by the guiding of the Holy Spirit, when God is impressing upon you, yes, no, maybe, not now, what have you. And listen, when you humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, this is very important. You may not know which decision or which direction to go in life. Now, of course, we've omitted the sinful things and all that. Yes. And you're earnestly seeking God's will. And you're so worried you're going to make the wrong decision. Don't worry about it. 
If you make the one and you've bathed it in prayer, you've sought wise counseling, you've been on your knees, you've given this to the Lord, you've humbled yourself, and somehow in the event you make the wrong decision, which you're probably not going to do, God will allow you to recover from it. Don't do it deliberately. Don't do it deliberately. I've done that. I've done it a couple of big times in my life with a career choice. I knew God was saying no. Yeah, but Lord, you know, and this and this and yeah, but, and I did it and both times it never worked out, (laughs) never worked out. And I knew it. I knew before I went that I was doing the wrong thing. Is that sinful? Yeah, I wasn't taking a sinful job. It was just another job in my career field and I knew it was wrong. But God in his graciousness, gave me unmerited favor. And he'll, he does the same thing for his children. He will allow you to recover from these things. When we humble ourselves before God, it evidences a voluntary willingness on the part of the believer to earnestly desire God accomplishing his plan for their life. I'm voluntarily doing this, Lord. I'm not doing it under duress. I'm not being forced to this. I genuinely want what you want for my life, and I'm seeking you. This is what the mature Christian seeks. The mature Christian seeks nothing more than God's will for his life. I mean, where else would you want to be? I mean, what else would you want for your life than God's will? We know that's best. So when we're genuinely striving to live a humble and obedient life before God, submissive, submissive before God, and we're doing this, and you know, you don't need anybody to tell you. You'll know. You'll be settled about it. You'll be crying out, Lord, I, I want what you want. And when we do this in, in sincere obedience to him, then indeed, we are living a life in alignment with his will for our life. When we're doing these things, we are indeed, you can be assured, you are living in alignment with God's plan for your life. Even if you're running from Rome for your very life, you're living in alignment with God's plan for your life. And an immediate result of living in obedience to the Lord is we severely reduce the self-inflicted hardships in our lives. When you're living and I am living in alignment with God's will, I severely reduce the self-inflicted hardships and sufferings that I bring into my life. It's not what God wants for us. He wants us to be obedient. Obedience to the Lord is a great stress reducer. I don't know about any of you, but I don't want any more stress in my life. And obedience to the Lord is a great stress reducer. It calms us down. There's two simple words which will change your life beginning today. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And when you do that, some things are going to be produced in your life. There will be a calmness in your physical body. When our minds are racing, when we're out of alignment with the Lord, our mind is racing, or we're under duress, or we're suffering... There's a host of physical reactions that take place in your body. Having been in federal law enforcement for 23 years, and, and I've never had to, I've pulled my gun out, but I've never had to use it. Thank you, Lord. But many, many times we've been on the shooting range or in the um, shoot house, raid houses, doing these high-intensity drills. And when you're under duress or eustress, stress, E-U stress, which is actually a good stress, not distress, 
Your body does certain things, but you can't sustain that chronically. You can only enter into that, that type of a world for a little while, acutely, and then you've got to get out of it. If you stay in it, that's when you, things start breaking down. And your body does things. I've been in the shoot houses where I've had, and in the debriefing, someone will say, yeah, when Grantham went in right after that, I shot the guy that was to his right, who I saw the guy, and I saw him go to, you know, it's a, it's, it was simunitions. But we have these real guns, and they're very loud. And I've been in a debriefing more than once where someone will say, yeah, I shot the guy after Grantham went left. I shot the guy that was right. I said, you shot him? He goes, yeah, I shot him seven times. And the gun went off like right here. I never heard it. It's called auditory exclusion. Tunnel vision where the world could be exploding out here and all you see is that. That's all part of these automatic reflexes the body goes into or responds the way the body responds when we're under a certain type of stress. Well, you can't live in that. It's detrimental to your mental and physical health. When we're living an obedient life to the Lord, a byproduct is your body's calm. You're calm. You're the peacemaker. I got this. Hey, hey, I got this. I got this. You're the peacemaker at work. You're not throwing gas on the gossip fire. You're a peacemaker. The Christian should be known as a peacemaker at work. It also gives us clarity in our minds. Clarity. Things become clear. Uh, many, many years ago when I became a Christian, I remember all of a sudden, all these options that I had as an unsaved young guy, they're no longer options. It was very simple. Not easy, but it was simple the way I should be living. There was clarity in my mind what God wanted for me. There's a peacefulness in your demeanor. There's a peacefulness in your demeanor. You as a Christian should be a very, very approachable person. We all know those people that's like, man, you never know who you're dealing with when they walk in the room, right? You don't walk up to that guy and slap him on the back and, hey, man, what are you up to? You in a hurry this morning? You just couldn't find a comb or what? There's people you don't do that to, you know, because you don't know who they are. We should have a peaceful, approachable demeanor. When we're obedient in obedience to the Lord, we have an inner assurance of harmony with God. Things are settled. I'm seeking you, Lord. There should be a gentleness in our actions. Even when we're suffering, we shouldn't be at war with the world. There should be an, there is going to be a gentleness in our actions. This obedience sustains the Christian. It matures the Christian so that God, as it says in verse six, God can exalt you in his due time. God wants to lift you up for his glory. And that's what he does on his timetable. This obedience and humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God, you'll see it played out. You know Christians like this, Christians that you admire. Christians, you go, man, I want to be like that guy. I want to be like her. This is what I want to be. We're reading about them 2,000 years later. Go read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Fox's Book of Martyrs. Go order that. I want to be like them. And you'll see it. And you'll describe it as, man, she or he, that's a strong, solid, active, living, mature, overt faith in that person. They are living for the Lord, even when the world is collapsing upon them. And all these things, what they do is they ensure the proper response to life situations and that we will be in alignment with his will for our lives. God wants us to be prepared for the suffering before it takes place. 
he warns us over and over, this is what is coming down. This is what you can expect. He wants us to have our theology of suffering, and this is very important. He wants us to have our theology of suffering in place before it strikes. Have you got your theology of persecution in place yet? Have you got your theology of suffering in place so that when it strikes, you're ready to go? You're not caught off guard? You're not surprised? We don't seek persecution. We don't seek suffering, but we know it's inevitable. The Lord makes it very clear. Matter of fact, let's turn to John 16, 33. John 16, 33. Remember, Peter is here when John quotes what Jesus says. Peter's one of the original apostles. He's lived as a Christian for 30 plus years. He's following the Lord. So he has this experience to go back on. John 16, 33. Here's what Jesus says. <clears throat> Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Um, those words don't need a lot of explanation, do they? There's not many places in this world, our current world, that you can find peace, probably not on a grand scale. And Jesus says right here, you can find that peace in me. Why, why do you think unsaved people act like unsaved people? They're not at peace with themselves. They're not at peace with the world. You know, look at our elected officials. Look what's going on in our country. They're no more than acting like unsaved people. This is what unsaved people do. This is the best. They are indeed living their best life now because if they don't get right with the Lord, we know what awaits them. Why shouldn't they be fighting for power and grabbing and notoriety? Why shouldn't they be looking for all that? You know, they truly can say, yeah, you only live once and you better get out of this life all you can. They're, they're just doing what unsaved people do. They're not pilgrims passing through here. Their worldview is I want it and I want it now and I want all of it. And if you're in the way, well, that's just too bad. They're in essence actually living out Darwin's theory of evolution. The big ones eat the little ones. The strong ones will dominate the weak. Well, the Christian, no. Jesus says, no. You, you want peace? You'll find it in me. In the world, you're going to have what we have, tribulation. That's an interesting word to look up. Do a word study on tribulation. But he says, take heart, heart, the seat of the emotions. We know it's just a vow, but it's a pump. But heart, everything about you, take, take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, we've seen what obedience does. So let's see what, on the other hand, disobedience does. If we choose to be, as in verse 5 there, where it says, to be proud. These areas of our life where we say, no, I'm not going to do that. Then we have chosen, if we do decide to do that, then we have been We've, we've made a decision. I'm going to be disobedient. Those areas of our life, in our lives, where we say, no, Lord. No, I'm not going to do that. This is mine. And when we do that, you know what this disobedience produces? It produces stress. Disobedience to God, S-I-N, is a stress multiplier. Have you ever done anything for the Lord and regretted it? No, and you're not going to, even including martyrdom. You're not going to do that. You never regret saying yes to the Lord. Now, we've all done things, and you know, I just 
pick on my own experiences of, you know, being a guy that spends a lot of time out on the streets and college campuses, open air preaching. I've never regretted going out there. I've wondered a few times if I'm going to get a few uh, beat down crowns. I've been cussed into the ground by you name it. You don't like it. It's not fun, but I don't regret going out there. Those people are acting like unsaved people. Unsaved people act like unsaved people. They're being disobedient to the Lord. We don't want to do that. We don't, you know, it's a stress multiplier, as I said. And when we do that, when we, we're disobedient to the Lord, even as Christians, it compounds our anxieties and it produces these self-inflicted burdens which just grow unchecked in our minds and in our lives. You know, it's like what A.W. Tozer said about these burdens. I'd recommend reading A.W. Tozer if you don't know who he is. A.W. Tozer said of these self-inflicted burdens, they are a heavy and crushing thing. He's so right. Disobedience to the Lord, here's what it does. It expends our energies. It exhausts our emotions. It wastes our time in the most unfruitful and unproductive and futile fashion. Disobedience to the Lord wastes our life. And this is what Peter is saying here. He knows what these Christians are going through and are enduring, and he wants them to suffer well for the glory of God. And when you and I choose to be disobedient, or, or you see it manifested probably every day in your unsaved friends, the farther we choose to go outside of the, of the mighty hand of God, the more our life's norms become one of self-inflicted suffering, frustration, anxiety, guilt, fear, and unrest. When we say no to the Lord, we're going in the exact opposite direction of where peace lies for us. There's no upside to disobedience to the Lord. The payoff is, a, is never a good one. So clearly these um, self-inflicted wounds, we obviously, we need to avoid them. They don't glorify God. Again, make it very clear. If the season you find yourself in now is self-inflicted, God uses sin sinlessly, and he can be glorified in this. He hasn't given up on you. He hasn't turned his back on you. God's patience is infinite in these issues. Yes, there are times there's deep theological arguments for when God gives someone up, but you're, you're not there. God hasn't turned you over. You haven't outsinned God. Or not to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Certainly not. But your sin hasn't outrun God's patience and his forgiveness. Verse 7. We are to cast all our cares upon him, all our anxieties upon him, for he cares for us. That casting is like when, we were, well, when I was a kid, we used to use a cast net. It's a big net, and I never was that good at throwing it, but you would twirl it, and it has lead weights, and you'd throw it, and it would expand out and go into the water, and everything under that net that cast net was caught. That's what the Lord wants us to do. He wants us to take all these things and cast them upon him. He's going to catch everything. We're to cast all of life's heartaches, discouragements, trials, disappointments, regrets, doubts, and sufferings on the Lord. 
And one of the, I've noticed this, and I'm sure you have too. One of the many downsides to our social media, which I'm, I'm not on, um, but I cyberstalk on my wife's Facebook page, so I'm watching you people. Um, one of the downsides to social media is God did not create a human being, you and I, to absorb all the world's problems. You're not able, nor are you capable, of absorbing and enduring all the tragedies of the world. And I'm not diminishing any of those, but you're not capable of handling those things. You can't handle your own, much less everybody else's, because God did not create us like that. And social media, instantly, we see all these tragedies and tragedies and tragedies and tragedies and, and, and wrongdoings and sufferings and misery and abuses. They're right there in front of us. God does not want us to absorb all those. We're not created to do that. Our shoulders aren't wide enough. I don't care how, much of a, how, much you are, how mature you are in the Lord. You're not created like to absorb those. You're not. We were actually created to live in a community, a very small community, so that we could absorb our own problems and our family's problems and our church's problems and our communities. We're not created to handle California's problems or Texas's problems or everybody else's, India's problems. Do we pray? Do we concern? Do we do our part? Yes. But you, this, this electronic media just feeds and feeds and feeds and feeds us. And it does just the opposite of what the Lord wants for us when we cast our anxieties upon him. This is what the Lord does for us. It, he calms us, he reassures us, and he gives us hope when we thought there was no hope. This is what the Lord does. He wants to buoy our spirits. He wants to buoy our emotions. He wants to give our mind clarity. He wants to give our, our inner being rest so that we can do what he has called us to do. All these other things detract from God's plan for your life and for my life. We have to be very discriminating on what we allow to be absorbed by us, what takes of our time. We're not to get into every fight and every argument at work. We're not to jump in there and do that. What we're to be are the calm ones, the peacemakers. We're to recognize the bumper to the right and the bumper to the left for our life's uh, in our life's road, the, the, the uh, trail that we're traveling down. This is where we're to be focused. We're members of the NOLA church. We should be focused here. We should be focused on our immediate family and on our immediate community. This is where our energy should be directed. And all of that should be done for the glory of God. Now, closing out here, I have uh, one more teaching that I got from a good buddy of mine, Todd Friel. Todd has a huge ministry called Wretched Radio. He's just north of Atlanta. He's a great, great guy. Anything that he puts out or provides is just theologically 100%. And it's a very practical way to assess if we are living or currently living in alignment with the Lord. Are we availing ourselves of God's providence, the way God works in our lives? So let's put up the first chart here. And if you were to Google uh, wretched radio stressed out, I think that's where it comes from. It's several years old. I, I taught this at my old church, a series of Wednesday nights, and it's pretty basic. So let me ask you this. 
What is the fuel that powers your mind, your brain? What is feeding your mind? You know, Scripture says we should meditate upon God's Word day and right, day and night. We should hide God's Word in our heart, meaning memorize it. That's why we do that here. We have memory verses. Even if you don't fully memorize it, you're ingesting it. You're reading God's Word, and it's making an imprint. So the fuel that powers our mind, this is the world, and it affects us. The world, the world's lies, lies in general, the devil... What is the devil doing? He's walking the earth, going about. He's probing, seeking. He's on your perimeter, seeking a weak spot, seeing if he can devour you. And when he finds that weak spot, he advances, he exploits it. He goes in. This is what the devil is doing. Sure, he had a good time with us before we're Christians, but now that we're Christians, we're target number one. He's seeking if he can devour, ruin our witness, ruin our testimony. The world lies, the devil, and self. It really should say, you know, I didn't ask for it to be put up there, but really you can think of self as self-deception. I'm not that bad of a person. Who cares? Just one little look, right? Pride, self-pride. And what these things do, they are a direct attack on our Christian faith. They are a direct attack on our Christian faith. What these non-scriptural, anti-godly influence do is negatively and directly counter our biblical faith. And what happens to our faith? Spiraling down, spiraling down, out of control. And then this, this faith that is under severe attack and diminishing, it affects our emotions. It affects our emotions. And then what do we find? Our emotions are out of control we have out-of-control, dangerous, ping-pong, whipsaw emotions. And then that, those emotions, they inform our thinking. And now we find our thinking is contaminated. Our thinking is contaminated. And this contaminated thinking produces disobedient actions in our lives and certainly before the Lord. And as a result, what do we end up with? Anxiety, stress, fear, worry, panic, chaos, poor decisions, etc., etc., etc. You can fill in a blank. I know we all can. And this is all perpetual. It feeds on itself because remember, your thinking is not clear. You're under duress. You're under stress. Your your brain has physically shifted the chemicals. You're not thinking clearly. It's that you wake up in the morning. You've got this blanket of darkness on you, depression. You, you just can't get out from under it. And you don't want to hear one more time about, oh, just walk it off or just, just forget about it. It doesn't work. And that anxiety, that, that probing attacks, and it just feeds on itself. It's, it's you know, circular logic without the logic. It's this perpetual machine. And we're per- particularly susceptible to this in times of hardship and suffering. And the world has thrown stuff on us. You know, we've got this wagon we pull behind us called life. And it just keeps getting piled with more and more rocks until the wheels are starting to go like this. And then one of the wheels comes off and one of the other wheels comes off. That's where you're at. That's what this leads to. That's why we need to be in the word of God, talking to wise men like Chad and brother Sam who will direct you back to the Word of God. So 
Let's look at what the Christian should do. Very simple. Got a lot simpler. What is the fuel that feeds your brain, feeds your mind? Three things. Jesus, the Bible, and truth, period. End of story. Don't complicate it. Jesus, the Bible, and truth. Christianity is a thinking person's religion. Christianity is a thinking person's religion, and our thinking is informed by Jesus, the Bible, and truth. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Second Timothy, somewhere in there. Just read it. You'll find it. I think it's 3, 16 and 17, right? Whew. All right. That's what informs you and I, correct? And this informs our thinking and then our Thinking controls our emotions. You don't want your emotions controlling your thinking. This proper Christian, theologically informed, doctrinally sound thinking then controls our emotions. And then our emotions drive our actions. And our actions, oddly enough, are obedient to God. That's where we find ourselves. They're obedient to God and they produce calmness, a peace that surpasses all understanding. Our faith grows tranquility comes upon you when everybody else is running around with their hair on fire or you're fleeing Rome. You've got this supernatural, Holy Spirit-directed, God, or, uh, um, God gives you this divine sense of direction and calmness because we know that no matter how this turns out, God is going to be glorified in it. And when we go through these things, our faith has been tested and we grow. And again, as A.W. Tozer says, we experience the blessed relief of rest. This is what we should be feeding our minds with throughout the day. The world is looking for answers. When things are good, everybody's cool. When things are bad, people notice people that are different. You and I as Christians should be the example for the unsaved world in these turbulent times that we live in. Our, our priorities are different than the world's. We need to stay on path, on the path God has called us to. And when we're obedient to the Lord, he will use us. He will do things for us that we could never imagine. So no matter what we're going through, if you're grieving and the grief tunnel is very dark right now, it's a fresh occurrence, the tunnel gets lighter and lighter. God wants to heal our minds. He wants to correct our actions and he wants to focus, us, focus on his will for our lives. So where else, I'll ask you one more time, kind of rhetorical, where else would we rather be than under the mighty hand of God? Amen? Amen. How about if I close this out in prayer? Father, thank you that you provide clear direction for us and instruction for us that we don't have to be running helter-skelter to and fro, running to the world, chaotic. God, you are a God of order and structure and calmness. Thank you, Lord, that you haven't turned your back on us when we deserve it. Thank you, Lord, that you still love us and care for us even in those times of the self-inflicted suffering, Lord. You're a gracious God. You're a wonderful God. Thank you for allowing us to avail. Or thank you for availing yourself to us. Thank you for feeding us. 
for nurturing us, for protecting, for protecting us, Lord. Thank you, God, for caring for us, Lord. You're a wonderful God. How can we serve you today should be on the very, should be at the very forefront of our mind. Lord, what can I do for you? And when, when suffering comes, Lord, give us the strength and the knowledge and the willingness and the love for you to suffer well for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.